Don't pay retail for your diamond engagement ring or gift. Come to CleanOrigin.com. Founded by a leading family in the diamond industry for more than a century, we're experts in lab-grown diamonds because that's all we do. Clean Origin, the only diamond jewelers who give you a 100-day, no-questions-asked return on your purchase. Head to CleanOrigin.com or one of our retail stores and mention code RADIO10 for 10% off your purchase. That's CleanOrigin.com, code RADIO10. It's been more than 25 years since the movie Twister came out, depicting scientists trying to gather data from inside tornadoes by leaving instruments in their path. As happens with time, technology improves, and now it's not just in the movies where scientists are attempting to get data from inside a tornado. One group of scientists are using drones to intercept tornadoes to gather data to help shed light on their inner workings and also to help the National Weather Service issue more accurate tornado warnings with longer lead times. The head of that project, Dr. Adam Houston, is here with us today. Adam, thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Thanks for having me, Marshall. Well, we have a question that we ask every Weather Geeks guest, and you're no exception. How did you become a Weather Geek? Um, yeah, the, I guess it started when I was a kid. I think it always does um, for, for, for a lot of us. Um, my, my dad was a, uh, before he retired, was a civil engineer and did stormwater management. And he would, so he was responsible for uh, developing and monitoring this flood early warning system in Austin, Texas, where I grew up. And one of the things, and of course, we had the computer in the office, in his office, which back in the day is just laughable how simple it was, of course. Yes. Um, but it had lots of flashing lights. And and when, you know, when certain stream gauges exceeded a, a particular threshold, et cetera. And, um, and so I would see that and kind of... It, it was kind of in awe with, with, you know, the technology, I guess, but also just the, the, the urgency of those, of these alerts. And every once in a while he'd need to go check a particular station. And so he'd throw me in the car um, and we'd go driving in the middle of a, if you know, flood, <laughs> really, the, the rain producing the flood. Turn around, don't drown. <laughs> we, we never, never were driving through anything bad. I know. Uh, raining, raining like the Dickens. And we'd go look at these, uh, these gauges. I, I honestly have no idea what he was actually trying to do. Um, but, uh, anyway, so yeah, that kind of sparked my interest, just the, 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 the technology of it, but also just how, how, uh, life threatening it can be, you know? Yeah. It's interesting that you say that because I have one of, one of my current graduate students is doing a master's thesis on flashiness and she's using USGS stream gauges, uh, to sort of evaluate the flashiness of streams here in Georgia. So you're bringing up some uh, work that actually resonates with me, even though that's not the main type of work we do. Now, we're going to talk with Dr. Adam Houston. Let me give you a little bit of his background. He's a PhD in atmospheric sciences from University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign, and a BS in meteorology from Texas A&M. So two really top programs in the field of atmospheric sciences and meteorology. Uh, He's an assistant professor. Uh, now, are you still an assistant professor there at the University? No, of no, I'm a, I'm a professor. Yeah, that's what I thought, because it says in my notes, assistant professor uh, since 2006. But I assume that by then you're probably a full professor. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, you're the lead investigator on Taurus, which is the targeted observation by radars and UAS as a supercells, which we're going to get all into. Um, but before we really 
really dive into tourists. Um, is most of your research there at the University of Nebraska focused on tornadoes? Or what are, what other things do you you get into? Um, not really. Uh, we do a lot of work in mesoscale, so you know it's a very broad topic, and which is is kind of what I like. I mean, I like having a diverse set of research foci. Um, and we do some stuff. I do a lot of stuff with engineers focusing on the on UAS, but on the technology itself uh, as well. Um, and I collaborate, obviously, with the University of Colorado, which is um, a, a key institution in tourists, but also some folks at the University of Nebraska doing uh, drone work, um, mainly in the in the rotary wing, you know, for for profiling. And I, you know, I have a kind of an engineering well, I have an engineering background because my my father and grandfather were engineers. Um, so I come by it honestly. And so I like doing the the development of, of stuff, you know, and, and so we've done some of that with, with UAS developing housings for sensors and um, you know, that kind of thing. So I, I, I have a, I have an interest in that and, and I'm not quali- probably qualified to do much of it, but I do it anyway. <laughs> well, that's okay. I, you know, I, <laughs> I have an appointment at the university of Georgia in the college of engineering, you and I have no degrees in engineering, but, but, you know, it's interesting, right? it's, you know, how those things came about. Now, I was watching a, a hearing, oddly, this uh, last week uh, that the, I guess, Congress is having on what we used to call UFOs. Now they're called UAPs. Uh, the reason I bring that up is what's the difference, if any, between a UAS and a drone? Or is it just a subcategory? It, it, they're like the same. It's a synonym. Um, mm-hmm. I, 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 long ago, the UAS was was the adopted because it really embraced the fact that this is more than just an aircraft. It's a whole system that is involved both with the onboard the aircraft with the autopilot and of course all the avionics, but also a ground station that has to track it and be it remotely or, or with a handset and it requires people and observers. I mean, it, it is truly a whole system. Um, I mean, I think in some ways it was, an attempt to move away from the term drone because people had a negative connotation with drone and that we've actually done some work that, that, or my colleagues have done some work that suggests that 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 negative connotation doesn't really exist much anymore. Um, So we, what what was the negative connotation? just before, let me stop you there. What was the negative connotation? I've always just known of drones and I didn't, I don't, I guess I don't see a negative or positive connotation, but maybe you work more closely. What's the negative connotation that was supposedly out there? Yeah, it was, it was the association with DOD. Ah, okay. Yeah. You know, the seek and destroy drones, Um, you know, still out there, of course. Um, Oh, sure. Sure. The, 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 yes. Yeah. Actually, the interesting thing is one of the other connotations that, that, drone has that and and this is just from my discussions with even my colleagues is that they're just toys you know that you know anyone can go buy a a a drone at the you know walmart or wherever and and fly it and and so you know what is how is this a sophisticated technology why how is this anything more than just a toy um this has nothing to do with the nomenclature aspect to it but it is one of those things that I, i feel like for many years we've had to, to address. And, and the, the fact of the matter is, I mean, we've been doing, I say we both University of Colorado, myself, University of Nebraska, but I've been collaborating with Oklahoma State and, and OU and Kentucky and Virginia Tech and a bunch of different UAS related projects. Um, it, 
there's a lot of work that goes into this and you know i'm not whining about it it's just a fact of the matter that any instrument you you put forward as a research grade instrument requires a tremendous amount of background both on the operation of the aircraft but also in quality collecting quality data and i think that's the piece that most people miss is that you can't just throw a thermometer on a rotary wing drone and expect to get quality observations it's really complicated and i mean i won't get into the details but um it's complicated. And, and, and then when you fly a, a fixed wing, which is what we do for tourists, it's also complicated in part because the aircraft is more challenging to operate than a typical kind of rotary wing that goes up and down. But also, I mean, we're flying in environments that can bias your readings. I mean, if you get rain on your sensor, you're not getting an accurate measurement. You know, if you get rain in the in the pitot tubes that measure velocity or that are used to measure velocity, then and it fills up, it fills up a pitot tube, you lose that sensor. I mean, there's all these kinds of nuances that could compromise the both the, whether or not you even get data, but the quality of the data. Yeah, that's so. Talking with Dr. Adam Houston about uh, his work with uh, unmanned aircraft systems or UASs. So I want to now pivot to the targeted observation by radars and UASs of supercells, Taurus. Tell us, um, you know, what, what Taurus is, why, why, what motivated it and um, what you're up to. Yeah. Taurus was funded in, in 2018. We had our first field campaign in 2019. Um, we're supposed to go back in the field in 2020, but and then 2021, and then, you know, COVID kept us from doing that. So we're finally back in the field this year. Uh, in, in general, Taurus is aiming to collect data in supercells and an attempt to expose the role that coherent structures and air mass boundaries within the supercells have on the generation of near surface rotation. So, I mean, it's it's definitely a, a supercell focused, it's in the name, of course, project with um, the idea that if we can really map out the, the character of these structures and start to develop associative relationships to the productions of production of tornadoes that we might, you know, advance our understanding and hopefully improve forecasting. Yeah. So the, so this is, is this national science foundation funded or NOAA or a little bit of both? It, well, it's mainly NSF. Um, most of the funding comes from NSF, but NOAA is also contributing a significant amount um, part of that, actually, maybe a, a large part of that contribution is for the P3. So we have the P3 Hurricane Hunter part of Taurus um, mapping the, the, they're ahead of the storm. They're not been doing any storm penetrations, um, but they have radars on board to a, a dual tail radar that's getting a, a storm scale perspective. Plus they have um, a Raman LIDAR pointing down. So we're getting these ribbons as they fly They have in situ instrumentation, instrumentation. So there's a lot on the P3, we're very thankful. Conrad Ziegler at, at the National Severe Storms Lab is the one leading that, that effort. It's been it's been great having, and Conrad's a PI on, on Taurus, but um, it's been great having the P3. And then the National Severe Storms Lab and CIRO, the Cooperative Institute associated with OU have some other instruments that they've been putting in uh, into, into Taurus. But yeah, most of the funding is coming from National Science Foundation. No, no, I'm curious because we've actually had on the Weather Geeks podcast in recent weeks some colleagues from the Perils experiment that, that's ongoing. Uh, are you coordinating in any way with them or are you going out in different places in terms of tourists? Yeah, it, it, different objectives, some similar instrumentation, um, and several of my uh, the PIs on tourists are involved in, in Perils. I'm not, um, and, and partly because of my leadership role in tourists, 
um, you know, I didn't want to, didn't want to divide myself too thin, but um, anyway, Perils is uh, a very interesting complement to Taurus. It's focused mainly in the Southeast part of the United States. It's focused on more quasi-linear convective systems um, and the, the, you know, rotation that can develop along the leading edge of those. Um, it's a different concept of operations. I mean, they're not mobile so much. They kind of, they, as, as I understand it, they put their instruments in, in place and then let the, the line come across. And that makes a lot of sense for that area and the type of storms that they're targeting. For what we're doing in Taurus, it, it really does make more sense to be completely mobile, have all the instrumentation able to move um, with the storm, you know, redeploy multiple times if possible, be flexible from day to day so that we can stay on the field for long periods of time and just kind of move with the systems. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. And I'm speaking with Dr. Adam Houston from the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. And we're talking about Taurus. And a big part of this is the UAS systems. Um, Describe the process of flying one of these systems, one of these drones, if you will, into the storms. Are you flying into them, around them, over the top of them, all of the above? And what are the particular challenges? Yeah, these, so these are aircraft, fixed-wing aircraft. Um, they're a foam construction. It's called the Raven. It's been developed by the University of Colorado. Uh, the wingspan's about 91 inches to kind of give you a sense for the size of these things. The big big thing to note, though, is these are fixed-wing, and so that, that gives us a lot of flexibility in deployment. We can fly for more than two hours at a time. You can't get that with rotary-wing drones. Um, and, and this is because as two of the mission areas that we're using UAS require going into the storm, coming out, um, maybe going back in again, and then getting away from the storm and landing. And because I mean, the fixed wing, it requires a little bit of time to land and, and you know, undeploy. Um, so we need that, that operations time. We need that air, that, that, that time in the sky. The nice thing about fixed wing is that they can also do profiling. So we have another mission area that's just ahead of the storm. We call that the near inflow mission. And the aim of this mission area is to do profiling. And so you can spiral up with the fixed wing, spiral down. You can do it multiple times. You can move to a different location and do another. Um, and so it has this, this versatility that we really need. Um, and, and that's the one thing I, I we really like about fixed wing is that you get almost all the capability. Well, you can get all the capability of rotor wing aircraft. And you also have the ability to fly these long and straight paths into and out of the storm. The problem with fixed wing is that they are more challenging to operate. 
Um, uh, the nice thing about rotary wing is I can operate a rotary wing. <laughs> I have my own, I have my own rotary wing um, with, uh, you know, meteorological instrumentation on it. And, you know, it's a le legit profiling instrument, but, you know, and I have no training beyond the part 107. Um, but with a fixed wing, it's way more difficult to do. Um, there's a, there's a lot more technology, but there's also a lot more uh, expertise required. So that's the kind of the trade-off between fixed wing and rotary wing. And, and so again, for Taurus, we are flying into the storm. Two of our missionaries are getting into the storm, uh, getting into precip, um, even getting into some hail, small hail is okay. Um, and then we have one that's uh, up, upstream of the storm. We're never flying above 2,500 feet. So, you know, we're certainly not going above the storm. Uh, that's been done in the past. They've had, um, you know, global hawks and, and um, other types of, of, uh, of drones, but that's not this project. This is smaller aircraft flying in very close proximity, in fact, into the storm um, uh, and, and just ahead of it. Yeah, and what instruments are on, on the drone? I mean, I, I heard you mention some some of the types of meteorological variables you're interested in, but specifically what instrumentation is on there? Um, right. We have uh, redundant PT, uh, PT8 sensors, so pressure, temperature, humidity. Um, one's a, a Visolidra sensor, one's a, an Intermet systems um, sensor. Um, we have redundancy because, you know, things happen. Um, sensors fail. Um, we also have a a uh, multi-hole probe. It's essentially a, a, a thing that sticks out. This the, the front of the aircraft has all these little holes in the front of it, and you can um, back out the pressure distribution across this this nose, all the little you know holes in it, and and back out the the velocity data, the wind velocity that is. Now, what's interesting about small aircraft is they tend to have a lot of motion relative to the wind. I mean, if a, a, a commercial aircraft generally doesn't have much flow across the aircraft. It is either pointed into the wind, what's well, always pointed into the wind, you know? And so it's typically a bit simpler to back out the wind velocity from a large aircraft like that. With the smaller aircraft, they are, I mean, they're moving around a lot. And so you you can't just use the, the speed at which the aircraft is moving, the GPS location, and kind of back out the wind you need a bit more sophistication in the instrumentation to do that. And so that's why I have this, they have a nine hole probe. And again, they, they can calibrate it so that the distribution pressure across these holes tells them the wind relative to that probe. Um, and so we should have wind velocity, both in the horizontal and vertical, which is obviously important in the strong environment, trying to back out, trying to, and, and to measure the vertical velocity is really important. Um, yeah, pressure, temperature, and humidity. Yeah, and I want to kind of put this back in context because earlier you mentioned sort of the overarching goals of this research uh, effort. Uh, there's still quite a bit we don't know about sort of the sort of lower atmosphere environment of supercell storms and uh, initiation of rotation and so forth. I mean, I, I teach the mesoskill radar meteorology class here at the University of Georgia. And there's one segment where I talk about the various theories of rotation, the role of the rear flank downdraft and the role of mesocyclones, if you will, on the leading edge of non-supercell and so forth. There, there are these theories out there. Geek out for us a little bit for our listeners. We like to geek out on the show on sort of what the sort of current theory is or the most understood sort of aspects of how rotation emerges in supercells. And that, and that, I guess that question's loaded because obviously supercell storms have mesocyclones. You've got these large sure, rotating sure. updrafts, then the sort of rotation that ultimately become, I guess, tornadoes. Yeah. Um, 
Well, so part of the, the thing that we don't know is, I mean, kind of from a 3,000 foot perspective is you can have an environment that we're pretty certain will support tornadoes, certainly supercells, but individual storms within that environment may or may not. And so you could have a line of supercells, you know, four or five supercells. It is very difficult to know with any lead time more than about 20 minutes whether a particular storm is going to produce a tornado. I and mean, we have a good way with radars to, to understand the rotation within the storm and give warnings, but to know the exact recipe that leads to one supercell becoming producing a tornado and another not is is a part of the, the, the unknown at this point. Okay, so that's kind of the, the bigger, bigger mm-hmm. picture. Now, in terms of the actual uh, theories for, for tornado formation, we do know ultimately the source of rotation and the supercell itself, the, when I say the supercell, the mid-level mesocyclone up in the mid-troposphere, that's pretty well understood. It has been well understood for many years. And there are nuances that, that uh, still we, we, we learn along the way. But in general, we know that that is rotation. That, that owes its origin to the vertical shear of the environment. Right. So yeah, so you have this kind of this barrel roll of, of, of rotation that can be tilted into the, into the vertical. Where we get some uncertainty and quite a bit of uncertainty is what's happening in the low levels. Um, we do know that the rota- source of rotation is twofold. One, still the vertical shear. In the, in the low level mesocyclone, that, that is in the lowest say thousand meters or so, but not necessarily at the surface, we know the source of rotation is the vertical shear. It's the same kind of thing for the mid-level mesocyclone. Um, but there's an additional source that is the related to the storm itself. I mean, obviously, both of them related to the storm. The updraft is tilting this horizontal rotation. But the storm is also generating horizontal vorticity. It creates these cold outflows. And on the margins of these outflows, you can get rotation. We say it generated solenoidally. It's basically just kind of a spin where you have sinking air where it's cold and rising air where it's warm. And that produces that rotation. And the tighter that gradient and temperature, the, the larger that, that potential for generation. And so that can be drawn into the storm and then sucked up into the updraft and so that's another source of rotation and that too has been known for many years the 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 unknown is the relative contributions but also that's just generating the low level mesocyclone that's not necessarily resulting in rotation at the surface Um, now we generally think that the source of rotation at the surface owes to that same solenoidal generation but it requires a bit of a of a kind of a crazy trajectory to get this. I mean, this is not simply going in and up because that source of rotation is intrinsically aloft. You have to have some measure of downward motion. You have to have a downdraft that, that, that's somewhat responsible for this. And so again, this is we've been building this knowledge base for many years. What Taurus is aiming to do is understand that kind of last few steps. You get this rotation, um, certainly a loft in the mid-levels, in the low levels, and some rotation at the surface, but something has to you know, pop and get it to coagulate, whatever, to concentrate into a tornado. Yes. And that is sometimes the failure mo- mode for a lot of these storms. Uh, you may have ample rotation in, you know, of these four supercells traveling uh, in, in an environment that we think can support tornadoes. All four of them may have this rotation, but only in one or two is that trigger for tornado genesis. And so the hypothesis that we are proposing 
we have obviously a lot of hypotheses, but one of them is that there are near surface features, an air mass boundary, or um, we have these SVC, the streamlined vorticity current, which is still aloft, but that can amplify the rotation and kind of bring it together to produce the tornado. And the fact that we find tornadoes on boundaries and supercells leads us to suppose that that they play some important dynamic role. But there is the alternative that they just happen to be there and that another process that is unrelated to the boundary itself is really what's important. They, the boundary is just kind of taking the ride, you know, and the tornado forming on it is because other processes are coming together at the boundary. One thing that, that I've been looking at uh, in my own research and others and in, in, in Taurus is that there are dynamics occurring at the boundary itself that are important. And, and we still don't know this. Part of it is we, you know, we, we need to take the Taurus data and, and analyze it. You know, obviously we only have one year, we need more years this year, hopefully. Um, and then we do need to do complementary numerical simulations. I mean, it's it's a very multifaceted approach, but ultimately it is to determine what is happening in those fairly short time scales to ultimately concentrate that rotation at the surface to produce the tornado. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard, and I'm speaking with Dr. Adam Houston. And we we just had an amazing geek out. I mean, if you listen to this podcast, uh, you know, we try to kind of give you an insight into aspects of meteorology, climate science, that you might not get otherwise. And I think uh, Dr. Houston really did a nice job there of giving you some insight into sort of supercell dynamics, mesoscale dynamics, and mesoscale processes in general. So this is what I love about this this podcast is because we can really kind of get get geek out, as we say. Um, one thing that you mentioned, and by, oh, I wanted to mention also, by the way, I, I think his discussion in the previous segment just illustrates the challenges because a lot of that he described requires data in an environment that we just don't have it at the scales that we need eat it temporally and spatially. And so that's really uh, the value of the, these field campaigns and, and special observations that we're getting from the UASs and so forth. I understand that this year, unlike 2019, you're going to be relaying some data back to the National Weather Service. Yeah. Um, you know, if, any, if we gained anything from COVID, and it's hard to say that we gained anything, but um, it, we had some time to, to think about what we could do differently in, in Taurus uh, in, in the next field campaign. And one of the things we've been talking about and actually kind of building some of the, the infrastructure to support was to distribute the data in real time to the National Weather Service. 
But one of the things that kind of impeded that progress early on was we didn't want to just throw data at them and say, you know, here you go, do the best you can with it. We wanted to gain some insight from them as to what data from Taurus they could use. And so we were able to actually conduct focus groups um, with the National Weather Service folks. And they're, well, they're just great. I, I mean, I, I can't speak highly enough of them. Uh, they're willing to contribute. They, they want more data. They want the, you know, quality data. They want to, you know, their job is to make the best forecast possible. And they are some of the best in the world. And in many cases, and we hear this over and over again, they don't have enough data. They, they need more data. And, but it's not just, you know, again, throw us as much, point the fire hose at us and we'll do the best we can. It needs to be data that are in a format that they can use in places and in, in the environment that are useful to them. And so that was a por- the purpose of those focus groups. And, and so from those, we developed a plan uh, for which data to distribute to them and in the, the format to distribute them. And, you know, we're, we're limited because Taurus was designed well before we came up with this idea. So we, you know, we, we can't add in new instrumentation, but what we can do is send them the data that we are collecting in a way that they can hopefully use it. So um, we have a, a system in place to do that. Um, and then after the fact, we're going to find out what worked. You know, we're going to send, we're going to have a, a survey. We're going to talk to them. We, we want to know what worked and what didn't work and then adapt that for the future. Taurus isn't going to happen again. I mean, this is the last field season for it, but in the future, the hope is that we can have other field campaigns that can start to really hone in on the, those data that are of value to the National Weather Service. Um, and they, it won't be this kind of the scope of Taurus, but it could be very focused on you know, those, those specific data that they need. And, and we have funding to the University of Colorado for, uh, through the National Science Foundation. Uh, it's a project led by the University of Colorado to do something similar. And it's it, using drones, of course, um, how we can take those data, and, and this is related to, to what we're doing in Taurus, but it's still somewhat different, how we can take those data and actually assimilate them into numerical weather prediction models, which is not, we're not doing that with Taurus. Uh, right now, what we're trying to do is give them directly to the National Weather Service folks and see if they can, and that's an important component, see what they can, if they can benefit from that. But there's also the other piece where assimilating those data into numerical weather prediction models may actually improve storm scale numerical weather prediction, which is something that the, the National Severe Storms Lab has been working on for many years, the Warn on Forecasting Program. Um, and so we're, we're using this as an opportunity to try to you know, move forward towards that vision of storm scale numerical weather prediction with the best data possible. And that's one of the limiting factors. We can develop the system to spit out numerical weather prediction guidance in, in short term for, for forecasters. But unless the data going in are quality, garbage in, garbage out. And so what we're trying to do is see what we can do with drones, and, and they're not the only answer. There are other platforms that may be valuable to improve the quality of those numerical weather predictions. You know, talking with Dr. Adam Houston. Boy, this has been amazing. I've really enjoyed this conversation. And, I, you know, ultimately, you know, our, our, all of our goals that are I, I mean, the community collective and people like Dr. Houston is to reduce the false alarm um, uh, rates and improve the t- of uh, potentially lethal storms uh, we know and we're in the heart of the season. I know this is taking place now through June in the plains. 
Um, I just want to read some stats collected by our Weather Geeks production team of what's what's happening there. You got four UAS drones, a NOAA P3, as you mentioned, eight Mesonet trucks, three mobile radar systems, a mobile LIDAR system, and a three balloon-borne sensor launcher. So you've got multiple instruments in this project. It's the largest ever study of its kind based on geographical area and the number of drones coverage. Um, what what do multiple drones allow for? What What is that gaining you? Yeah, I mean, mapping multiple parts of the storm at the same time. Um, you know, if we concentrate all of our instrumentation in one part of the storm, that's great. We can get a, a you know a good perspective on that portion of the storm. But this is you know there are multiple areas that we need to be sampling simultaneously, and that's the key. Um, we have three mission areas that UAS are are focused on. One is the left flank, um, and so this is in a perspective moving with the storm. So if you're facing the storm. The direction storm is moving, the left flank is on the left. It's generally on the north side of the updraft. Um, there are a lot of features there that are, are potentially important. The left flank vertical vorticity sheet, the you know, left flank convergence boundaries, the streamwise vorticity current. I mean, lots of stuff going on. Um, the right flank, obviously on the right side of, this, of the updraft, so kind of the south side of the updraft. Um, there are features there that are important. There's uh, surges in the rear flank gust front, surges, uh, rear flank internal surges, and those have been shown to potentially lead to tornadogenesis as they increase the convergence of existing rotation. And so being able to sample those is important. And then the third is ahead of the storm. So you're not actually in the storm itself, but you know, to, to know what the storm is gonna do, we need to know what, the, what air is being ingested into the storm and that has not been modified by the storm. Um, moreover, there could be heterogeneities in the near inflow. And then we need to be able to map those. We saw those in 2019 um, and it's not new. We, we know that these heterogeneities can be important. I've, I've done research on these heterogeneities, mainly air mass boundaries, but that's not the only thing that can be out there. Um, and so being able to characterize those heterogeneities can be really important. And then finally, to get a sense for how the storm is modifying the environment. If you're within 10 kilometers of the storm, you're not really sampling the air that is uh, unaffected by the storm. The storm is starting to affect the air at even you know, 10 kilometers out. And so that, that mechanism by which a storm modifies the environment can be really important. You have this potential feedback where the storm makes the environment more favorable, which makes the storm stronger, which makes the environment more favorable. And so that, that feedback is something that we're trying to explore as well. Well, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast. We are out of time, but it, 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 I hope that people, is there anywhere people can follow information on social media or a website on tours? Yeah, um, we have a, a social, pretty good social media presence. We're on Twitter. Um, I think it's Taurus. Just search Taurus. Taurus. On, on Twitter. I think it's, it's maybe Taurus Supercell, but yep. about Twitter, um, uh, Instagram, YouTube, Facebook. We're, we're on all of those. Just search, search Taurus or Taurus Supercell, something like that. Um, and then the webpage. Um, which isn't updated really frequently, but if you want kind of a, a landing place for some basic information about Taurus, it's Taurus, T-O-R-U-S dot U-N-L dot E-D-U. Okay, thank you. So make sure you go check those out. I know I will be uh, right after this taping. Um, we don't have a Geek of the Week officially this week, but this is the time of the podcast where we recognize a weather weenie, a geologist, or a shining scientist that's really a geek that we like to highlight. Now, we didn't have an official one this week, but I'm going to acknowledge the team associated with Taurus as our collective geeks of the week. Uh, University of Nebraska-Lincoln, Texas Tech, University of Colorado-Boulder, 
uh, NOAA's National Severe Storms Lab and the Cooperative Institute there at the University of Oklahoma and NSSL and anyone else that we miss that is involved in Taurus. You are our collective geek of the week. Uh, Dr. Houston, thank you so much for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Thanks, Marshall. Appreciate it. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. We'll see you next time. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.